It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode includes discussion of sexual assault and the murders of children. Today, we're going to talk a bit about the Delphi murders. To recap, on February 13, 2017, Libby German and Abigail Williams walked across the Monon High Bridge in Delphi, Indiana. Libby even posted an image of Abby making her way along it. A few minutes later, they ran into someone, a man. Libby recorded at least a portion of that encounter, but only a very few moments of it have ever been released. The man calls them guys and tells them to go down the hill. We don't know exactly what happened next. 
But police believe that the person you just heard on that snippet of audio killed Libby and Abby. Today, nearly five years after the murders of Libby and Abby, people remain captivated by this case. There are, of course, many reasons for this. But one of the things we hear mentioned most often is that people find it amazing that two young people could be attacked and killed in a public place in broad daylight. Those circumstances seem so unusual that some are tempted to draw conclusions from it. Perhaps the killer knew the girls were going to be there. Maybe he was a local who was familiar with the area around the bridge and so knew how to pick a time when it was likely no one else would stumble across him committing his crime. Perhaps he was able to control the two girls at once because he was someone who was used to having a position of authority over kids. Maybe... Well, there is almost no end to the speculation. But are those speculations valid? Can we actually draw any meaningful conclusions from what we know about the circumstances of the murders of Libby and Abby? To try to figure that out, we decided to do something a bit different this week. We're going to take a murder sheet approach to this case. That means digging down and finding other homicides that share key attributes with what happened to Libby and Abby. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenley. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the murder sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're in the murder sheet, and this is The Delphi Murders, Double Homicides, Part 1. clear, we're not saying that any of these cases we are about to tell you about closely resemble the murders of Abby and Libby. We can't tell you that. While there's been no shortage of online discussion and rumors about the Delphi murders, there's very little verified information out there. Police haven't even released the specifics around their cause of death. And so, when we went looking for cases, we set fairly simple parameters based on what little has been confirmed about Delphi. We sought out double homicides committed in public places. Most happened in broad daylight. The victims in these cases were underaged, mid-teens at the oldest. 
we're going to tell you about a couple of the cases we found. And afterwards, we're talking about what, if anything, these crimes can tell us about what could have happened at Delphi. With all of that in mind, let's go to San Jose, California, on Sunday, August 3rd, 1969. 14-year-old Deborah Gay Furlong and 15-year-old Kathy Snoozy had a fun idea on how to spend a weekend afternoon. The high school classmates would pack a lunch and go picnicking on what the locals called Cardboard Hill, a 200-foot-tall incline that overlooked the neighborhood they lived in. It was a popular spot, full of trees and shrubbery and hiking trails. Kids liked to slide down the smooth spots on sheets of cardboard. Motorcyclists liked to use the place to run their bikes up and down the twisting trails. And people like Deborah and Kathy just enjoyed going there to delight in nature. So that morning, the girls met at Kathy's place and packed themselves a nice picnic lunch. They even filled up a plastic jug with iced punch for them to enjoy with their meal. After everything was ready, the friends hopped on their bikes and rode the short distance to Cardboard Hill. They parked their bikes at the foot of the incline, carefully locking them to a fence, and then they began to hike up the hill. They never came back. In the early evening, their fathers became worried and went out to hunt for them. The mind of Deborah's father, Glenn, went to a fairly dark place, but he still imagined everything would work out and the girls would still come home. He assumed the girls had gone further than they planned. They had drifted into the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains. There, one of the girls had likely gotten injured in some way, and the other girl was probably just loyally staying by her friend's side until help inevitably arrived. It was a scary situation, but everything would end up being all right. Glenn Furlong was wrong. Around 8 p.m., someone found the girls. They lay on the ground near a gathering of trees. Their plastic cooler jug lay nearby. They had each been stabbed to death with a thin-bladed stiletto, and their wounds were horrible. Incredibly, the two girls were stabbed a total of at least 300 times. I've never seen anything as bad as this in the 10 years I've been in this work, Santa Clara County Coroner Dr. John Hauser told the New York Daily News. I never saw a case with this many stab wounds. It was an overkill. A frenzy. 15-year-old Kathy was stabbed 200 times in her chest and back. Some of those wounds went deep. Others were only punctures. 14-year-old Debbie was cut in her chest and back 100 times. And there were a few odd details about the girls' injuries. For one thing, the girls had no defensive wounds on their hands or arms, which suggested they may not have fought back against their killer. Something else seemed a bit peculiar. The girls' breasts had been nicked a few times, but most of the wounds on their chests seemed calculated to avoid hitting that area. And there were absolutely no wounds below the girls' waists. Was the killer deliberately avoiding injuring the parts of the girls' bodies that he associated with sex? If so, why? Neither girl had been raped. A shaken Glenn Furlong spoke with the press the next day, 
apologizing for the fact that his backyard was messy. We've been building a wing on the house so Debbie and the other children could each have a bedroom, he sighed sadly. I don't think I'll finish it. It doesn't seem to make sense now, does it? Meanwhile, of course, the police started their investigation. They released all sorts of tidbits and details that, had this been a few decades later, would have inspired thousands upon thousands of speculative Reddit and web sleuth posts. For instance, there was not much blood at the crime scene. Could this possibly mean the girls had been killed elsewhere and dumped at the scene? Witnesses came forward who recalled seeing what was described as a white van-type bus in the vicinity on the day of the murders. Could this have been the vehicle used to transport the bodies? And, as always, when similar crimes occurred, police and the public speculated that there could have been some sort of connection to this case. Less than a week after the girls were killed, for instance, followers of Charles Manson killed Sharon Tate, her unborn child, and four of her friends. San Jose police publicly said they saw similarities between that crime and what happened to Kathy and Debbie. Could there be a connection? There were also moments when it looked as if the whole case was about to bust wide open. A few days after the killings, police arrested 19-year-old Charles Douglas Johnston after the teen used a weapon to try to force another youth inside a van. That van had originally been white, but had recently been painted blue. A white van, of course, had been seen in the area where Debbie and Kathy died. What's more... The police discovered evidence of blood inside the van, despite the fact that the vehicle showed signs of being recently washed. An unspecified tool located in the van also had hair on it. I hope, said San Jose Chief of Detectives Bart Collins, this is the break we have been waiting for. But it wasn't. Soon thereafter, the police declared that Johnston was not a suspect in the murders anymore and that... On second thought, those stains inside the van didn't even look like blood. This whole thing, said Lieutenant Fred Peterson, assistant chief of San Jose's detective bureau, has been blown up out of proportion by the press. The investigation continued, and police dutifully worked each lead. But eventually, they realized they were in law enforcement's nightmare scenario. They would likely not be able to catch the murderer unless he killed again. On April 11, 1971, over a year and a half after the murders of Kathy and Debbie, 18-year-old Kathy Bilek told her parents she was heading out for a hike in the park on the wooded trail behind the Villa Montalvo Museum in Saratoga, California. Saratoga, we should point out, is located a very short distance from San Jose, which is where Kathy and Debbie lived and died. The cities are actually even in the same county. Kathy went to the woods behind the museum regularly, both to hike and also just to read. Most of the time, she brought her pet German Shepherd with her, but he'd gotten into a bit of trouble recently. He bit someone and so had been taken by the police to a shelter. And so on this day, Kathy made the trip to the woods alone. She did not come home. Her worried parents reported her disappearance to the police, 
and her father, Charles Bilek, even joined a search party of about 30 sheriff's deputies. They soon confirmed that she had indeed gone to the museum. They discovered the family car still sitting in the parking lot. And then they all headed into the woods. It was, horribly enough, Kathy's father who discovered her body. She had been stabbed 49 times. All of the wounds were above the waist. Santa Clara County homicide detective Robert Malone told the Los Angeles Times that this killing was a carbon copy of the earlier murders. Both cases, said Malone, were instances of psychotic, frenzied-type killing. Santa Clara County Coroner Dr. John Hauser once again conducted the autopsy. He claimed that the patterns of wounds on the three victims were so similar that if you set the autopsy photos of them all in a row, it would be difficult to tell them apart. It appears, autopsy surgeons reported to the police, the death of Miss Bilek and the deaths of the Furlong and Snoozy girls are related. Police did not want to give him an opportunity to kill again. They went all out and made a public appeal, pleading with anyone who might have been in the area on the day of the murder to come forward and share what they saw. And they got results. Two people came forward with interesting stories. 23-year-old Judy Robluski had not actually been in the area on the day of the murder, but she'd been there a couple of weeks earlier. She'd been hiking alone, enjoying herself, when she heard the sounds of footsteps behind her. She turned and saw a pleasant enough-looking man who introduced himself as Carl. He started to make small talk with her about the beauty of nature and told her a bit about himself. He worked at a hamburger place and was also a student at San Jose City College. There was something about him that seemed off to her. Maybe it was the way he always kept one hand on his pocket. And then Judy got a premonition she couldn't explain. Carl wanted to kill her. He told her he'd lost his keys somewhere in the dark, deep woods. Would she do him a huge favor and go and help him look for them? She shook her head. She didn't tell him she was scared of what he might do to her. Instead, she claimed that her legs were just too tired and she really needed to rest. She headed back towards the parking lot, where there would be other people and she would be safe. He followed her and he never tried to attack her or even stop her. When they reached the lot, he got into a car, and Judy did not think of the man again until after she heard about Kathy Bilek. Someone else came forward, too. 37-year-old park ranger Ken Williamson. During the course of his work at the park, he'd occasionally run into a young man who introduced himself as Carl and claimed to be a student at San Jose City College. There was nothing outwardly suspicious or unusual about Carl, except that Williamson thought it was a little strange that he always came to the park alone. Most guys who came there brought a girl with them, but Carl never did. For some reason, he couldn't quite articulate. As soon as Williamson learned what happened to Kathy Bilek, he thought about Carl. 
Williamson hopped in his car and drove straight to the park. He spotted Carl's vehicle in the parking lot, and he jotted down the license number. He then went to the police and told them everything. The two stories fit together, and investigators immediately grew very interested in Carl. They used his license plate number to get his full name. It was Carl F. Werner. He was 19, and he was indeed a student at the college. Doing a little more digging, they learned that at the time of the murders of Deborah Furlong and Kathy Snoozy, Carl had been living in the same neighborhood with them. His parents' house was actually just a block away from the Snoozy residence. There was something else, too. It turned out that the Werner family had formerly lived in Massachusetts. At one point during their time there, Carl had pulled a knife on a housewife which earned him a brief stint in a mental hospital. Police picked him up for questioning, and, after a few hours, Werner made a full confession. He claimed the murders of Kathy and Deborah had occurred more or less by happenstance. He'd come across them on the hill, made a bit of small talk, and then, he said, this loud bang went off in my head. He quickly shoved his pocket knife into Kathy, and before Deborah could react, he stabbed her too. He kept stabbing both girls, first one and then another. And then, he said, he went home, ate something, watched television briefly, and then went to bed. He left the murder weapon in a drawer in the master bedroom. Police found it there after his confession. Werner also revealed what happened between him and Kathy Bialik. After running into her at the park, he said, some kind of flash and bang went off in my head, and he began stabbing her in a frenzy. After hearing all of the details of what Werner had done, some members of law enforcement began to wonder if he could also be responsible for the Zodiac murders. But he was cleared of involvement in those crimes since it was discovered that he and his family still lived in Massachusetts at the time the Zodiac began operating in California. Judy Robluski and Ken Williamson, the two tipsters who gave police the crucial pieces of the puzzle, split a $25,000 reward for their efforts. Werner would go on to plead guilty to the three murders. He was sentenced to life in prison and is still incarcerated today. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. 
It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Wesley Allen Dodd was a problem from almost the very beginning. As a young teenager, he'd flash other kids in the neighborhood. No one seemed to treat his actions with the seriousness they deserved. Not his parents. They buried their heads in the sand over his behavior telling themselves that since he seemed to be a good boy in other areas, they shouldn't make a big deal out of such a relatively harmless quirk. And not the court system. As Timothy Egan of the New York Times noted, whenever Dodd's actions brought him before a judge, a pattern began to develop. No judge wanted to send him to jail for long, despite his candor about a string of sex crimes. The authorities, reflecting the sentencing standards of the time, opted for treatment, and a belief in the promises from the young defendant. But Dodds's promises were empty, and his behavior steadily grew worse and worse. He started molesting kids he babysat. He got arrested for indecent exposure, but was let go with a slap on the wrist, just the suggestion that he should go in for some juvenile counseling. In 1981, when he was 20, Dodd joined the Navy. He soon got in trouble there, too. He was caught offering to pay some boys for sex. The pattern towards leniency continued. The Navy did not even bother to prosecute him for his crime. Instead, they just gave him a general discharge. Back in civilian life, Dodd continued his ways and kept on victimizing innocents. In 1984, he was convicted of lewd and lascivious behavior with a minor. The judge threw the book at Dodd, sentencing him to 10 years. But, as Timothy Egan noted, Dodd made a good impression on the judge, and so he commuted the 10-year sentence to a mere four months, on the condition that Dodd attend counseling. The therapy didn't work. It never did. Each time I entered treatment, Dodd later wrote in a court document, I continued to molest children. I liked molesting children and did what I had to do to avoid jail so I could continue molesting. In 1987, Dodd got caught trying to abduct a seven-year-old boy. There was no doubt as to what his intentions were. Later, he freely confessed that he had planned to rape and then murder the child. 
For this crime, he was charged with attempted indecent liberties and was released after serving just 118 days on the condition that he seek therapy. But instead of getting help, Dodd began hanging out in parks, watching children, and planning. The Supreme Court of Washington described what happened next in their opinion in State v. Dodd. From September 2nd to September 4th, 1989, Dodd spent hours, or entire days, surveying David Douglas Park to find ideal crime sites. He considered which times were best for hunting, appraised possible victims, and considered how he could rape and murder children without being apprehended. Dodd also considered what weapons to use, obtained those weapons, and brought them to the park. On September 4th, he saw two boys who were the proper age playing on bikes in the park. 11-year-old Cole Near and his 10-year-old brother, Billy. He approached the Near brothers, ordered the boys to come with him, and led them to a secluded area of the park. He told the boys to bring their bikes because he did not want anyone to see the abandoned bikes and begin to search for the boys. In a wooded area of the park, Dodd tied Billy's and Cole's wrists together so that the boys faced him, and he raped Cole while Billy cried. Dodd then cut the boys loose, made them kneel down, and he tried to rape Cole again. Dodd told the boys he wanted one more thing. He took a knife from under his pant leg and stabbed Billy in the gut. As Cole, who was still kneeling, started to rise, Dodd stabbed him in the side and chest. Despite his wounds, Billy tried to run away. Dodd pursued him and, as Billy repeated, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dodd fatally stabbed him. Dodd checked the area for incriminating evidence, made sure that Cole was dead, and then left the park. The next day, Dodd put the knife in a manila envelope and threw the envelope in a dumpster. The knife wounded Cole's chest, sliced into an artery that was near his heart. He likely died within minutes. The wounds to Billy cut a major artery near his kidney. It may have taken him as long as half an hour to die. Dodd was not done yet. He wrote about his violent sexual fantasies, and he had more plans. Again, let's allow the Supreme Court of Washington to tell the story. Dodd described various means he might employ to murder victims, including hang by neck, strangle with hands, and strangle by rope. He described how he would restrain victims, tying their hands loosely over their head and tying them down at the chest, knees, abdomen, and ankles. He considered the advantages of kidnapping a boy, so I feel more comfortable and can take more time for the various types of sex before killing the child. He expressed the desire to hang a nude six-year-old victim and take pictures of the body. Dodd assessed possible crime sites using maps and driving around the Portland area, and he bought a camera. On October 29, 1989, around noon, 
Dodd went to a school playground he surveyed the preceding day. He saw a group of boys playing football and, away from the group, a younger boy playing alone. Dodd approached four-year-old Lee Aselli and asked if he wanted to have some fun and make some money. When the boy hesitated and seemed unsure, Dodd took his hand and led him from the playground to Dodd's car. Lee Aselli began crying in the car, but Dodd held Lee's hand and promised not to hurt him. When they arrived at Dodd's apartment at 1.30 p.m., Dodd noted the circumstances were perfect. His neighbor and landlord were out. Dodd told Lee to take off his clothes, and when the boy protested, began undressing him. Dodd tied Lee to a bed, the boy's hands over his head, restrained at the chest, knees, abdomen, and ankles, then took photographs of the nude boy. During the day and evening of October 29th and the morning of October 30th, Dodd raped and strangled Iseli. The torturous details of the rapes and murder are not relevant to reaching a decision in this case. When Dodd returned from work the afternoon of October 30th, he burned Iseli's clothing, put Iseli's corpse in a trash bag, and dumped the garbage near Vancouver Lake. Dodd's bloodlust was still not sated. On November 13, 1989, he went to the New Liberty Theater in Thomas, Washington, in order to find a new victim. William Ray Graves happened to be there that night. He, his girlfriend, and her five-year-old son James were having a family night out to see the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. At some point that evening, James excused himself to go to the bathroom. William and his girlfriend didn't think anything of letting the boy go there alone. What they didn't know, what they couldn't possibly know, was that Wesley Allen Dodd was in the bathroom too, waiting for his next victim. Dodd grabbed the child and started walking the short distance to the exit, but James fought back. We heard a commotion in the bathroom, Kathy Asher, co-owner of the theater, told the Associated Press, and it got louder and louder. The guy kept saying, calm down, son, calm down, son. The closer to the front door they got, the more hysterical he got. This attracted the attention of several people in the theater, who closely trailed the man after he left the building. The boy started screaming, help me, help me, recalled Asher. We took off running after the guy. When Dodd reached his vehicle, he dug into his pocket for his keys, and James seized that opportunity to get away from the predator. He rushed to one of the onlookers, wrapped his arms around her knees, and said, That man was trying to hurt me. Dodd, meanwhile, drove off in a hurry. By that time, William Ray Graves, the boyfriend of James's mother, had appeared. He quickly got a description of Dodd's car. I'm out of here, he said. I'm going to go find him. He took off. Before long, he succeeded in spotting Dodd's car. It had stalled. Graves played the Good Samaritan, pretending like he was interested in helping Dodd to get his car running again. 
but when he got close enough to Dodd, he grabbed the predator and put him in a hammerlock. Graves had him back at the theater within 10 minutes after he had left. I caught the son of a bitch, he said. Police took Dodd into custody shortly thereafter. Things happened quickly after that. Dodd eventually confessed to the three murders. During a search of Dodd's home, police also uncovered a great deal of incriminating evidence, including a diary in which Dodd had written about the killings and photographs of the dead body of victim Lee Aselli. Dodd ultimately pled guilty and was sentenced to death. He was executed on January 5th, 1993. So what, if anything, do these cases tell us about what could have happened at Delphi? Well, for one thing, I'd always been of the mindset that doubted that a random predator committed the murders of Libby and Abby. How could their killer have known the girls would be there? How could he be certain no one else would stumble across them? People like Carl Werner and Wesley Dodd have shown me I could be overthinking things. Werner went to the sort of public places where he knew his preferred victim types liked to hang out. And then, when the opportunity to attack a vulnerable girl or two arose, he seized it, committing his awful crimes. Dodd, on the other hand, spent days carefully scouting out the park where he wanted to strike painstakingly calculating how he could best commit his terrible acts undetected. It is easy to imagine the murderer of Abby and Libby following either of those two courses of action. They most certainly could have been killed by a random predator. And it's probably worth noting that in neither of these cases did the killer seem to have much difficulty controlling or killing his multiple victims. Perhaps we have all been guilty of overestimating how difficult it would have been for the Delphi killer to control Abby and Libby. These cases also have a few things in common, which we certainly hope do not also apply to the Delphi case. Both Werner and Dodd had had red flags in their background, which should have alerted anyone paying attention to how dangerous these men were. It would be heartbreaking if something like that also occurred with the Delphi killer and that Abby and Libby perhaps could have been saved if people in the legal system had been more observant. And then there is the big thing. Both Werner and Dodd got away with their double homicides and were only caught because something inside them made them want to kill and kill again. We earnestly wish that this is not the case with the Delphi murderer and that he may be brought to justice before he hurts anyone else. One final note. We were quite interested to realize that in each of these cases, the killers were only arrested with the active help of the public. In Werner's case, tipsters supplied crucial clues, and in the Dodd matter, of course, William Graves actually captured the killer himself, Hopefully, the investigators of the Delphi murders remember this and trust the public with more actionable information about what happened to Abby and Libby. It might make a huge difference. And their strategy of keeping almost everything strictly secret has not produced anything but confusion 
and endless speculation. For this episode, we relied on the reporting of Phil Garlington Jr. of the San Francisco Examiner, Kermit Jadiger of the New York Daily News, Jim Stingley of the Los Angeles Times, Timothy Egan of the New York Times, and the Associated Press. We also relied on the Supreme Court of Washington's opinion in State v. Dodd. As part of our ongoing investigation into the Delphi case, We'll be doing future episodes where we break down other double homicides of young people. Please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com if there's any case that you think is similar enough to cover. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on the murder sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the murder sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.